be with you again. <clears throat> I said to Mark some time ago that you know you don't if if you need me go ahead and and call even last minute you know that's the advantage of being uh, re- retired you you can be sit there and then when they need you you just they call you we were just in winnipeg for a few weeks and one of the grandkids were complaining they said they were tired <laughs> i said listen when you've been tired as much as i have they finally call you retired that's one line. And then another one I often say is, is and that fits more what's happening tonight. Retired just means that this vehicle has gone a few miles and you retired it. You put new tread on and you keep on trucking. That's kind of the second meaning of what being retired is. And that's more applicable for this evening. A passage that's meant a lot to me, a theme that Peter talks about in in Second Peter one, verse uh, one to five, and I don't know. I saw you put this. I don't know what page that's on in your own. Um, maybe it's in here. Maybe it's not. But uh, otherwise, you can look it up. I'll read it to you. I'll be reading the first eleven verses of Second Peter chapter one. I'm going to break it up. First read the first four verses and deal particularly with verses 3 and 4. And then I'll conclude at the end with reading the rest as kind of a, an application of the message. So Second Peter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then especially these next two verses. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Pray with me. God, may these words that uh, Peter penned many years ago through the power of your Spirit make sense to us. Help me as I explain them as best as possible. They're so rich. And may we then do our best to go from here living out your word as it's meant to be a lived word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 3 begins by saying, Peter writes, His divine power.
power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I believe Peter's starting, that's where I'd like to, with a big picture. You see, God is by nature an extending God who with his divine power from the beginning reaches out and gives of himself as he did when he created the world. And the highlight of that creating was making us humans, male and female, in his own image so that indeed we might enjoy life and walk like him in godliness. No, this is my way of review. You know what our first parents did? They preferred a lie and chose for themselves not the image that God had portrayed, but that Satan gave to them. And since then, all of us humans have sought to find our identity not in God, but outside of him, in ourselves or in some creature or ideology. But God, seeing how we wavered in his powerful love, has again extended himself and provided a way back by doing what we celebrate at this time of year, entering this broken world, and as Peter explains, becoming incarnate, revealing his fullness to us in Christ so that we might once again see what we were originally intended to be. And that's how, through Christ, we come again to participate in the divine nature, to share in God's abundance, this extending rich God grants to us all things. I believe Peter is summing up in verses 3 and 4 what is at the core of God's mission on this earth. The, essentially what he's doing, what he's up to. Now there's lots of ways in which we could describe what God's doing, what his mission is. Sometimes we say he's, he's renewing the earth, he's bringing about the redemption of mankind, he's ushering in his kingdom, he's saving souls, he's healing the broken. But at the core of what God's doing is he's reforming or transforming us humans from the inside out into the person and likeness of Jesus. God is primarily in the business of shaping hearts and minds so that men, women, boys, and girls become good or godly people, the kind who represent him and bring hope to the world. So God, by dwelling in us now by the Spirit that he's poured out, this this powerful presence of Christ, helps us participate in his divine nature so that Jesus' prayer that the will of God would be done on earth the way it is in heaven actually gets to be fulfilled. 
to, to help us appreciate how important this sharing in the divine nature is and, and how it's central to God's mission on earth, all we really need to do is ask, what are the greatest challenges that we face today in our world? And are they not mostly an issue of ungodly character? Is this not why there's turmoil in the Middle East and war in the Ukraine? Is this not why there are refugee crises? Why some want to build walls? Is this not the failure of many marriages, strained family and church relations? Isn't it at the heart of political rancor? Our greatest challenges are due to people resisting God and not allowing the Spirit of Christ, His personal presence, to shape their mind and their life. And that's why, as Peter is saying, what the world needs most is people being formed into the shape or person of Christ from the inside out. Jesus clearly taught that what happens inside of us determines how we act. When he said it's not what goes into us, but what comes out of us that really matters. How we think and believe determines how we behave. As Paul says in Romans 12, we're being transformed by the renewal of our mind. His prayer for the Galatians was, My dear children, for whom I again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. See, that's what Peter's talking about in verses 3 and 4. Read it again. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge or the knowing of him, that is Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence. In other words, he he radiated himself. And it's in that way by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We'll come back to that. So that through them, we may become partakers of the divine nature. Those who have escaped the corruption in the world because of sinful desire. God, in his power, generously made a way... Think about this, for you and I to share his divine nature. And the good news, or part of it is, that sharing in that divine nature is equally accessible to every one of us. Every single person in the beginning, God created us to be like him. And that original goodness, and now this potential for good, is built into the very fabric of who we are. We we were designed to be good people. 
And this equality of access is also true because Christ, the second Adam, or the truest representative of what it is to be human, is also available for all people. So while our original sin will and certainly does overshadow our original goodness, God in Christ has now made a way available for all of us to be recreated or retrofitted back into what we were designed to be, reflecting God, His image. People good like Him, who live for the good of others and the good of the planet. And not only is our this, this formation that God is seeking to do in us into godliness and Christ-likeness available to all people, it also doesn't require a budget. <laughs> we don't have to be rich. It doesn't require a formal education. You don't even have to have a high IQ. Not even a seminary degree. Christ is free and available and accessible for all. But this free gift will be meaningless until we come or unless we come to see who Christ is and how each one of us are actually able to become like him. And so required for this change or reformation of our lives is a a vision or a revelation of who Jesus is. If we cannot see what's intended for us and we see that in Christ, then we won't want to work at it. Because why work at something you can't imagine? You know, my grandparents on uh, my father's side, this is a little example of how important imagining or seeing things is. Uh, They immigrated to uh, Edmonton, Alberta in the early 1900s, two weeks after the Titanic sank. They got on a boat. And family tried to convince them, to discourage them, but the arrangements were in place. And uh, (laughs) my words are, they were Dutch and they weren't going to waste their money because they couldn't get it back, so they got on the boat anyways. But you see, they had a vision. And they trusted God to provide. The Canadian government used to advertise in other countries, inviting them to come to this great land that had so much potential. And it's in the same way that God holds out for us now a promise that if we will enter his kingdom in Christ, he'll provide for us whatever we need all the spiritual, emotional, physical resources required 
for becoming a good person and living a fulsome life. But for that to happen, you need to believe it's true. If we don't believe that this kingdom of God that Christ has come to redeem and, make, and build is a reality, why would we want to invest in it? Why would we want to risk our lives on it? If we're at all going to be interested in living like Christ and becoming like him, we first must believe and accept that we were made by God to image him, and now we actually have the potential to be like him. That's what Peter's pointing to. And it's also John who speaks this way. In 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, Dear friends, now we're children of God, and what will be has not yet been known or revealed, but we know that when Christ appears, that is, when what we will become, because when he appears, we'll say, Oh, that's what we're supposed to be like. Then, says John, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him will purify or sanctify themselves just as he is pure. I don't know if you're getting the point. It's that if we receive this mental picture of who we're meant to be in Jesus, then we'll want to work at it. If we have this hope in Christ, we'll be eager to purify ourselves as he is pure. But part of the challenge, and at times the frustration, is that we don't fully see or know Christ. It's not Christ's fault. It's due to our poor eyesight, or sometimes our refusal to look deeply into the word to see who Jesus really is. Sometimes we can be afraid to be confronted with the truth. And so John and Peter remind us that Jesus is God's full revelation and shows us our true worth and informs us when we see who Jesus is what we're actually meant to become. Like God. And so this saying, seeing is believing applies to Jesus. When we see him for who he is, we'll actually believe in him. A blind man cannot drive, and a person who cannot see Jesus will not believe in him. But when we meet the one who's both true God and man, full of grace and truth, then we'll want to believe in him and come to long to be like him. And this seeing who Christ is, seeing is believing, is a reoccurring theme in the New Testament. Paul writes to Corinthians, and we all who, in, in 2 Corinthians 3, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image 
with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul reminds the believers in Colossae of the power of those that, uh, that comes to us uh, when we see who Jesus is, when he says, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to this fullness. So Paul's prayer for the Ephesians is that they would be filled to the measure of this fullness. And that's why coming back to Peter, he can tell us that we have all we need for leading and living the Christian life. Christ, by virtue of who he is, is inviting us to come with him on this journey toward wholeness. It will involve suffering. It will involve discipline and sacrifice, but in the end, it will yield an existence that is rich and eternal. Again, this is how Peter states it. His divine power, Second Peter 1.3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to or through his own glory and excellence. Everything we have, or that we need rather, for living a godly life has been provided for us. It's something like you've purchased a brand new barbecue and every single thing you need to assemble, it is right there. And there's, there's nothing missing, not a cotter pin or a washer. It's all there, including, in this case, it doesn't usually come, but a full tank of propane. God in his divine power has given us everything we need for living a faithful and flourishing life. It's available. Don't have to wait. Helps till the kids are gone. Got a little more time then. Don't have to wait until your spouse gets his or her act together or you get through a tough season. No, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. So why aren't we Christians all like that, like Christ. Well, the reasons vary. Sometimes we just get burned out by life. Christ may at times truly be our vision, but as some have said, vision uh, has a way of leaking, and if we don't stoke the faith, it diminishes. Some days we have this sinking feeling that we aren't so much better today, perhaps even a little worse, a little less patient or peaceful. You know, as you get older, sometimes, you know, we become grumpy old (laughs) men or women who complain too much. And after a while, we just learn to make ourselves at home 
with our sins or what some call our demons and hope nobody finds out. And we learn to manage our sin rather than conquer it. And so, how often aren't we settling for dregs, for living a good enough life, and not wanting to battle our deficiencies? We can easily accept that, you know what? It's who I am, it's the way I'll be. And then we tell ourselves, God's gracious, and we let sloth slip in. Now, in all fairness to ourselves and to the text, the fact that God provides all we need for a virtuous life kind of implies, doesn't it, that we aren't living that way at the moment. And Peter isn't guilting us, he's gracing us. He isn't pushing us, he's enticing us by letting us know what our potential is. Namely, that God has given us everything we need for a life of godliness in this corrupt world. In a world where fleshly desires and their failures are publicized or made into movies for everybody to see, God still wondrously supplies through the life of Christ all the resources needed for an alternative lifestyle. Here's how the message reads in 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Everything that goes into a life of pleasing God has been miraculously given to us. How? By getting to know personally and intimately the one who invited us to God. See, all we need for this life comes through knowing Jesus and getting connected to the one who has come to us and who calls us, entices us, and continues to draw us to himself through his own glory and excellence or virtue. God attracts us to this new life that's possible for every one of us by revealing himself to us in the perfect and glorious Jesus. It's something like when you, you see a new model phone. Somebody delivered to us two brand new phones. We've got to find out how to transition <laughs> to them. But, you know, you see the new ones, they're more powerful. You want to trade up. Christianity is trading up. It's exchanging our old character for the new Christ model. And the transformation occurs in us to the extent we see who Jesus is and get Christ in us. You know, once the prodigal came to his senses and saw how good his father and gracious his father was, he came home. And once we come to know how glorious Christ is and how generously 
He supplies. We come home through him to the Father who provides all we need for living the Christian life. See, that's why Peter writes in verse 4, by which or the divine resources available to us in Christ, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. What's Peter saying? that along with our life in Christ comes these precious and very great promises. In other words, Jesus shows us how much promise our life actually holds. If you and I want to see how much potential our life has, we only need look to Jesus On the other hand, Peter's warning that those who turn away from or refuse to see the promise that Christ holds out for us, those who refuse this hope and future that Christ provides, invite carnage into their lives. The alternative to participating in God's promises is participating in what he calls the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So those who selfishly long for a better or more promising life through more goods or more sex or more power or more glory, they will self-destruct along with others. However, anyone who places their hope in Christ and the promise he brings and who are willing to patiently live with less while first seeking the kingdom can trust that in God's time and however he will, he'll provide these things that we need for serving him. Let me conclude. There's only one way to live in this life without letting the power of human greed and power corrupt us. And that's to grow in the knowledge of who Jesus is and to believe we can and one day we will become like him. We all have choices to make. We all get to choose how we think, how we behave, what thoughts we have. People outside of us and forces around us, well, they can be a very strong influence, but no one can make you steal or hate or lust or kill. Those are choices that we make. And in Christ, there's available to us all the resources we need to be good 
divine human beings inside and out. And it's for this reason Peter goes on to say in verse 5, in other words, given who Christ is now for you and the potential you have in him, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so near-sighted that he or she is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Revolution, if we may use that word properly, in our world, or revival as it's needed in the church, starts in here. With you, with me, and with anyone who desires this new life that Christ provides. Because the eternal life, which begins now is this life of knowing more about Jesus and being filled up more and more with his spirit until one day, that day when we will come to see Jesus in the fullness of who he is. And then we will become what we were originally created to be full image bearers of God who participate fully in his divine nature. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, it's amazing to us your way of working with us in Jesus. How you entered this world and uh, took on our flesh and experienced our frustration so that we might become like you, the one who was victorious over sin. And so, God, as we struggle in this world, give us the patience and the persistence as we look forward for the day when we will be as loving, as compassionate, as just, 
as patient and as faithful as our Lord Jesus is and meant for us to be. Until then, may we live by and out of your grace and help us to get to know you more and more and better and better, O Christ, until that day when we see you in full and come to enjoy your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.